Well, for months now, we've been going through the book of Luke so that we can see Jesus. But today, you are going to see something that human beings can get sucked into chasing after. But it just leaves you empty and wanting more. The spectacular, the extraordinary, the breathtaking, adrenaline-pumping, bucket list kind of moments. Go to Luke chapter 9. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, if you were with us last week, then you know what's saying. Oh, we've hit the pinnacle of the book of Luke so far. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right and said, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he began to clarify, if that's who I am, here's what my disciples will look like. So after those critical sayings, clarifying who is Jesus and how do his disciples look and live when they truly believe in who he is, now this. Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James And went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
So what can we see about the glory of Jesus that might change how we live now and think now from this passage? Number one, oh, what you, what you need to understand from this passage and from the whole Bible is that Jesus, his greatest glory, when you talk about glory, his greatest glory surrounds his ultimate mission of weakness and death. We don't usually associate glory with death. We don't think these two things go together, but Jesus did. Look at verse 30 and 31 again. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to, key word, accomplish in Jerusalem. He was going to accomplish something. This is not where things went awry and got out of hand and he was killed. This is the reason for which he came into this world. He was about to accomplish the very purpose for which he had come. To solve our sin problem. Not our temporal problems. What he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, what's going on right here? Well, I think what you see right here in this passage is right here is probably the greatest Bible conference that's ever happened here on earth. Because you got all the big names, Marquis. You got all the big names in one place. You got Moses, who represents the law, the first five books of the Bible. You got Elijah, who represents all the prophets who have been pointing and saying, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The promise God made to solve our problem. He's coming. He's coming. And you've got Jesus, the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. So what would they want to talk about? What would these three big names be discussing? You think about it. With these three big names, they could have had an amazing time, right? Comparing spectacular moments they had all been a part of in the past. Moses could have said, oh my goodness, I still haven't gotten over it. Guys, remember? There I am facing the Red Sea. God called me to lead the nation out of Egypt. I've got an Egyptian army bearing down on me because they changed their mind and they're coming after us. Everybody's going crazy. We can't get across. And I just stretched out my hand and the sea parted with walls of water blowing up on each side. And we crossed through dry land. And then I turned around and as the Egyptian army got into the middle of all that, I just stretched out my hand again. And I'll never forget, it's the loudest thing I've ever heard. As walls of water began to crash down, people are screaming, horses are screaming, and we stood and watched chariots and armor and bodies washed up onto the shore. Wow. And Elijah said, well, Mount Carmel, dude, Mount Carmel, I'm the only prophet there. And I stared down 700 prophets of Baal and I laid it on the line and said, let's see who the one true living God is. Okay. You see if your God will send fire to destroy the sacrifice. And they carried on for a half a day. They cut themselves. They stabbed themselves. They screamed. And I mocked them. I actually said, is your God using the bathroom? Read it. It's in the Old Testament. Is your God using the bathroom? Maybe he's on a trip. Scream louder. And I made fun of them. And then finally I said, enough. You're bleeding. You're tired. Sit down. And I called and I said, you know what? Before I do this, go get water. And he, we dug a ditch around my sacrifice and altar. I said, pour water there. I said, go get more water. Pour more water. 
We filled it up. And then I called on the name of the one true living God and fire fell from heaven, licked up all the water, took the sacrifice and even obliterated the stones. Boom. Showing God. And Jesus said, all right, never mind, both of you. Do you remember when I stood? You remember when I stood in front of the tomb of my good friend Lazarus outside of Jerusalem in Bethany? And all of Jerusalem was already there wailing and crying and grieving and on purpose. I showed up late. I waited three days. They're my good friends. I love Martha, Mary. This was their brother. But I waited on purpose. And I said, now move the stone. And, and, and one of the sisters said, but Lord, he stinketh. Old King James. Lord, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead three days. He's going to smell horrible. His de- brother is decomposing. I said, do it anyway. Move the stone. And then I simply declared, Lazarus, if he hadn't said Lazarus, everyone in the whole vicinity would have rose, risen from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And he stepped out, still bound and wrapped in grave clothes. And I said, unloose him. But that's not what they talked about. They didn't talk about any amazing, spectacular moment from the past. They talked about what was coming next. His suffering and death in our place on the cross. Because this is far greater than anything that has ever happened in the history of man so far. You do realize... There are more references to glory and glorify surrounding Jesus' impending death. Jesus and his Father, God the Father, used the words glory and glorify surrounding his impending death more than any other event in all of history. Not creation, not anything else. His impending suffering and death. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. Glory and glorify are all surrounding his suffering and death. We don't think that way, but he does. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Look at me. If you read all the gospels, you see, you'll see Jesus was repeatedly saying all along the way, my hour has not yet come. That's what he said to his mother, Mary, when she said, they're out of wine. What can you do? He said, my hour has not yet come. He said it continually. He would still do things, but he continually referred to this pinnacle moment. Now he's saying it has come. It has come. The hour has come for the son of man to be what? Say it louder glorified. What does that mean? Is he going to kick out the Romans and set up his throne and make all things that are unjust right? That's what we would want. That's what his disciples wanted. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, oh, look where he's headed. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and say it, say it louder, dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He came to die. He came to die. And then notice, if he's a suffering savior that was on a path of death, again, he wants to clarify, if you're my follower, the word Christian simply means little Christ. 
He reminds them again of what his followers will look like. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. Here's an honest moment. Because Jesus was not just fully God, he was also fully what? Man, he knew what was coming. He knew the horrific suffering and death And it wasn't just the spear in his side. It wasn't just the the nails in his hands and feet. It wasn't just the crown of thorns. It was that the wrath of God stored up for all time against all sin was going to be poured out on him. He knew for what he'd come to do. And his soul was troubled. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour purpose. I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. See, Jesus didn't come to just heal lame legs, open blind eyes, feed hungry people. He came to break the power of sin, to break the slavery we were born with to Satan. Now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When I die, I will break the slavery to sin that we're born with and give hope to all mankind. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's not talking about his ascension back to heaven and he makes it very clear. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of, say it, death. He was going to die. He was going to be lifted up from the earth So that people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, that's what we see in Revelation 7 and 9, can come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because what was necessary to satisfy a holy, holy God, the righteousness needed that we could never come up with by trying to keep the law or anything we would ever do has been done for us. Jesus was lifted up to solve our biggest problem, the sin problem. That's the hour. That's the hour. And it is surrounded with glory and glorify, glory and glorify, glory and glorify. More than any other event in all of history. But I want you to notice something else. Number two, the sight of his glory. The sight of his glory was meant to change us. Absolutely. When you see his glory, When you know more of who he is and his glory, it was meant to change you. Oh, but hang on. It was meant to change us, but not keep us from heading back into this dark world. Let's start with how it was meant to change us. Look at verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. This has got to encourage you. You go through the gospels. You you find the disciples sleeping through most prayer meetings. 
And so if that's a struggle for you, it's not a new struggle. It's like you just begin to nod off. It's a challenge for me. How do I stay awake to even pray? Sometimes I have to pray out loud. Sometimes I have to stand and pace. The disciples continually fell asleep. He's praying. They're sleeping. But the glory of Jesus woke them up. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory. What are we talking about? What is this first time? What did they see in a way that they had not yet as readily seen? They've been with him. This is not the front end of his ministry. They've been with him. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him feed 20,000 people. They've seen so much. And they've even had private times of discussion and special discipleship with him. They've seen so much. What are they seeing right now that they've not yet seen quite as readily? Well, it was far more than just being stunned by a bright light, though that is part of it. In fact, the Greek word right there at the end of verse 29 that is translated dazzling white clothing is a word that is used in the Greek for lightning. So this was not like Jesus just kind of slightly glowing, you know, like a lightning bug in the summertime. Oh, that makes me feel warm and cozy No, no, no. This was imagine. Imagine lightning is bursting. It's it's shocking. It's terrifying. It's unsettling. There is lightning flashes emanating from his whole body. They wake up and they see this. But it is far more than just terrifying flashing light. Because the word glory in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the word glory communicates something more. In the Bible, the word glory is always that it indicates something weighty that matters as opposed to something superficial and disposable. Our world is filled with superficial and disposable, superficial and disposable. Our God, his character, what he does, who he is and what he does is weighty. It matters. It's not superficial. It's not disposable. You could define the glory of God as the external revelation or revealing. The external revelation of his internal character and beauty and wonder. In other words, the glory of God is the character, beauty, wonder of God gone public. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the Say it louder. Glory of God. That's why even unbelievers are moved by creation because it is an extension of our glorious God. The problem is they just stop with creation and they try to worship creation. But it was meant to signal to us, oh my goodness, there is a glorious creator God behind this glorious creation because an explosion could not have done this. Last week I talked about the helix DNA. Like, oh my goodness, 3.1 billion letters. That did not happen from an explosion. Every time you watch on the news an explosion, things get worse, not better. There's pieces everywhere and there's chaos. This is intentional. This has incredible mind-blowing design to it. And the heavens, moon, sun, stars, galaxies declare his glory, his glory, his glory in general. But where is the glory of God most clearly and fully revealed to us? 
The glory of God is most clearly revealed to us in the Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of God. The person of Jesus Christ. And it's actually that glory, the glory of God that's found in the Son of God that we were created to live for. You realize the Bible says in Genesis we're created in his image. Unlike animals, plants, stars, rocks, everything. We are the only things that are in his image. We were created to be image bearers. We are like God. But it also tells us we were created for the glory of God. To live for the glory of God. That's what we were created for. And yet our sinful flesh keeps turning us in on ourselves to try to make much of ourselves. John Piper says, quote, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Right? I mean, why do we go? And people come back and they're like, oh my goodness. Pastor Fannin had a sabbatical this summer and went somewhere in Montana where they hiked up some incredible mountain. And when they got to the top, he said there was some amazing lake with some mountain behind it. And he was just stunned. He didn't say, and I just felt like I was so important. That's not what he told me as I asked, how was the sabbatical? These moments make us feel appropriately small and aware of something bigger, something grander. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. It's not just a great sadness, you guys. It breeds great confusion because people don't know what they're supposed to be living for. And the more our culture pushes them, live for you, live for you, make it about you. Confusion just continues and satisfaction does not settle into their lives. Because you were made to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, and then to live for his glory. The sooner you begin to do that, the sooner you will have a sense of, I think I know why I'm here. Oh, I have purpose. I have joy. I have peace. Glory of God. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, for we do not preach ourselves. Don't make it all about you. Don't promote you. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who say it? Jesus. The glory of God is most clearly revealed to us and shown to us in the Son of God, Jesus. And that is the very starting point for salvation. Until you can see the glory of God that's found in the Son of God, you're lost. You're lost. There aren't many paths to God. When our culture does allow any thoughts of God, it's like choose your flavor, choose your path, choose whatever. It doesn't really matter. There's only one place. It's, it, there's only one person, Jesus Christ. The knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he's not just the starting point. You don't just start with Jesus for salvation. Oh, it's continually learning and seeing and delighting in and drinking in more of the glory of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done that actually changes us and makes us more like him. You realize salvation is point in time. You get saved. I know everybody doesn't know the date and the hour, but it's, it's like you were lost and then you're saved. It's not like, I don't know. When I hear people say, I've been a Christian my whole life, that's a little too long. You may say, I had a, a, an awareness of God and an interest in God my whole life. Great. But you're born lost in darkness, dead in sins, enslaved to Satan. And there has to be a point at which that is broken when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not a general fuzzy idea of God, but the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who did for you what you could never do. Saved. His record is now your record. Robe of righteousness given to you. No condemnation, no guilt, no shame. But you don't just start with Jesus. It's knowing him and delighting in him and drinking in more of his glory that is the process of sanctification that changes you and makes you more like him. That's what you see in the scriptures and that's why Paul talks the way he does in 2 Corinthians 3. Go there and look at it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16. Look at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You don't turn to religion. You don't turn to tradition. You don't, you don't turn to list. You don't turn to baptism. You don't turn to lighting candles. You don't t- turn to burning incense. You don't turn to you trying harder. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul is not talking right here about that mountaintop experience because he wasn't there. That was Peter, James, and John. He's writing to a group of Christians who live in a wicked, immoral city called Corinth. You don't hear it much today, but for years, it was was a very, it was a slam to call someone a Corinthian. And that meant you are so immoral. You are, that's the city they were in. These new believers are living in a wicked city. And Paul's saying, let me, let me help you understand. How would you become more like Jesus in the midst of this? I know you got saved. I know you put your trust in him. You want to become more like him? Keep beholding his glory. Keep looking at the glory of Jesus. Keep knowing him. Keep delighting in him. Keep sitting at his feet. And you will be transformed more and more from one degree of glory to another. Change. So listen to me. You will never become more like Jesus without spending time with Jesus in God's word. You're like, you say this a lot. Yeah, I say it a lot because it's so critical. It's so critical. Like, I don't think physicians are ever going to get up, give up on, you've got to have all the major food groups. Cotton candy and sugar babies and milk duds will not get it done. I feel bad. What are you eating? Junk. Stop. 
here's vegetables, here's fruit, here's grains, here's a little bit of meat, not too much red meat, lots of water. You drinking water? No, I'm doing the do. I'm doing the do. Well, stop the do and do water. I mean, physicians, there's nothing else they can do if you ever want to look at them and say, you say that all the time because it's the answer. You want to be physically healthy, this is what you got to eat. You want to be spiritually alive and you want to know how to do better in this world we're in, this dark, crazy, broken world. You must, you must take in God's word and see his son, who he is and what he's done, who he is and what he's done, who he is and what he's done, who he is and what he's done. You'll never become more like him without spending time with him through God's word. That's how you change. And that's why. That's why so many Christians today don't love, look, or live like Jesus. If I have one more person say to me, ah, I'm busy, I'm busy. When I point them to God's word, they're discouraged, they're depressed, they're angry, they're fearful. Where are you reading the Bible? Oh, I'm not. I haven't said it yet because I don't want to be that unkind. Inside, I'd like to say, shut up. Just go be depressed because I can't help you. Just keep being angry and anxious because I got nothing else. Somehow they want something else. Tell me, tell me something else. I want to feel better, but I do not want to make time to spend time in God's word. You can't do it. You can't do it. And that's why they don't look or live much like Jesus. But, oh, you have time. That stupid thing in your pocket that's making a white shape on front of your jeans. That thing that you reach to like an addict a hundred times during the day. To, to see Facebook, to see Twitter, to see whatever the other things are. FaceTime, slam, whatever. TikTok. Oh, yeah, TikTok. Let me slam that. TikTok. Okay, so someone's saying beans, beans, beans. That ain't going to change your life. Stop sending me that stuff. And you put it down and pick up the Bible. <laughs> when I say like, Jesus, how long will I be with you? <laughs> This is what he's given me. There's not another answer, but I'm okay. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for being there for me. It's like you cannot take in endless hours of how bad it is. I've got good friends that keep pushing me. Oh, listen to this because every day they'll tell you something really bad that's about to happen. Why would I want to do that? When it happens, I'll ask God to help me. But to know it hasn't even happened, but it's about to happen, isn't going to help me. Like, how would that change how I live the day? It's like, you're taking in too much of how bad it is. You don't want to miss a moment. Well, I just might have missed something overnight. Let's see how bad it is now. And yet, you say you don't have time for this. And this will reorient you this will frame it up bigger this in a sense everything in this world you guys your flesh and our enemy satan and the world pulls you down and wants to shrink wrap your life with right here right now is the only thing going on the only thing that matters when you go to god's word with god's spirit at work in you it's like it takes this giant sword and punches a hole in that cellophane and peels it back and you can breathe and grace comes in and you're like oh but there's more and some of you have been down here since pre-pandemic And you need a giant hole punched in that cellophane. And it happens with God's word and God's spirit and God's son. King Jesus is at work in this mess. And we get to follow him. And we're his kids. But 
you will not think like him, live like him, or have hope if you're not sitting at his feet, drinking his glory, getting more of his glory. I mean, I can honestly tell you, I'm not still just doing this because it's a good gig and it'd be hard to start over. But, you know, at this age in my life, you guys, I believe this more than ever. And I don't sit every morning saying, I've so seen that before. This is my 20th year to go through the Bible. Oh, I'm so bored. I throw up my hands and I'm like, oh God, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. It just keeps getting better and better and better. And as things get worse and worse, it gets better and better. And it seems lighter and lighter and more hopeful as things get worse. But you got to be spending time with him. His glory was meant to change us as you see it, as you spend time with something besides this dark world. But, oh, there's a mistake that Peter made that we can be guilty of making. His glory was never meant to keep us from heading back into this dark world. I know there's a temptation. Could we just get a piece of property and five Christian families build houses there and hunker down with guns and crops and just, just ride it out till Jesus comes? <laughs> he doesn't want us to hunker down. And news alert, when you get those five families there, it will blow up. <laughs> it will blow up. And it'll be awkward. Our driveway goes right past them and now we don't speak. And it happened over crops. I don't know. It happened over crops. happened over Halloween. happened over a gift bag. It's going to happen. You do not want to live with all Christians until it's heaven. Trust me. Christians are like manure. You spread them around, they do a lot of good. You pile them up and it stinks. (laughs) Go get in regular neighborhoods and fertilize something. Just fertilize a little bit. But when you all get together, it's like, what's that smell? Oh, I think it's us. It's us. It's us. Oh. There's a day coming of unending glory where it just won't stop. But today's not that day. We see the glory, it's real, and it changes what we're thinking and feeling as we head back into the darkness. His glory was never meant to keep us from heading back into the world. Peter does exactly what we're tempted to do when we experience some of the glory and the wonder. We'd like to capture that and keep it and stay there, right? Just capture it, keep it, stay there. Look at what he says in verse 33. And as the men were parting with him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Not knowing what he said. He doesn't even get to finish. God the Father interrupts him because it says in the next verse, as he was saying... It's like, enough. Because I think he was headed towards a little souvenir stand. And a souvenir stand on the side with some bobblehead Moses and some refrigerator magnets. And we'll run it. And this is so good, other people can climb the mountain and see it and buy a bobblehead. It's like, he gets interrupted. You're not supposed to stay here. Because in the Greek, it's not tent. I know that sounds kind of sad. It's actually tabernacle or shrine. Let's build three monumental shrines and let's just keep this moment. And God the Father interrupted him, interrupted him. Dr. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lets us know that Peter is way off base and doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's why, I don't know if you wondered, when I got to the end, 
that I didn't just stop with the transfiguration. You're like, this sounds like two sermons. You went on into a boy who's demon-possessed that's being thrown to the ground. I know. I did that on purpose. And here's why. Look at verse 37 again. Because I think these two events put into perspective what happens to us over and over and how he's called us to live. Look at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down. They only get 24 hours of this. Not a weekend, not 40 days. One day. And on the next day, they had to come down. And when they did, oh, it's not just hungry people. It's chaos. The passage teaches us that you have to come down from the mountain. And when you do, you will often find a world that is so broken with confusion and chaos and darkness. The contrast between these two passages is jarring, right? We've gone from glory of Jesus in a way I've never seen. Let's build some shrines and stay here to, oh, as soon as they descended the mountain, they were assaulted by the demands and disappointments of life that so often overwhelm us. Is that not how it feels? I mean, I'll have the most amazing time in the morning with my Lord. I'm like, I'm happy again. I have hope again. I want to be a pastor. And I look at my phone, I get an email. I'm done. I'm done, I can't do this. I mean, it's just crushed quickly, which is why I need to meet with him every day. And you don't just have to have, be a pastor to need that. All you have to be is a believer. You gotta have it every day, every day, every day that I get realigned again, see some glory, get it reframed, get a bigger perspective, get hope. Every day, every day, because you got to go back into things that are confusing and, and, and are overwhelming that you think, oh, it's a very disturbing scene. If you think about it. the father is crying out, the boy is crying out, the boy is foaming at the mouth, the boy is being thrown to the ground and the disciples are helpless to do anything about it. That's very upsetting. So here's what you need to understand. The glory of Jesus at work in you. He's at work in me. He's at work in you, making us more like him. But don't make a mistake. The glory of Jesus at work in you still leaves you desperately in need of him and his power because you still have none of your own. None. None. John 15, apart from him, he's divine. We're the branch. Apart from him, we can do what? Say it louder. Nothing. So you often have this sense of, I don't have what I need for this moment. I don't have what I need for this moment. That's not just you. That's what the Bible teaches. Look, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning of verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning of verse 4. Such is the confidence that we, where should our confidence be? Not us. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient. Some of your translations say adequate. Do you ever, do you ever think I just, I'm not adequate. I don't have what I need for this right now. I don't have it. I don't welcome. He never said you would not 
that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You're like, well, if I don't have power of my own, what do we have, Brad? Look at chapter 4, beginning verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? The gospel and the spirit of the living Christ. Resurrected Christ lives in you. The gospel has power. And Jesus Christ's resurrected spirit in you has power. We have this treasure in jars of clay. There's this huge contrast. I'm still very weak, fragile, inadequate. But I've got this treasure of the gospel and the spirit. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to who? God and not us. So no one would make a mistake and say, oh my goodness, you are amazing. And people are kind. Every now and then someone says that to me. Oh my goodness. I try to correct them quickly. I am not amazing. God is amazing. And I get to be the humble servant of an amazing God. Anything he does that is wow, it's my joy that he did it. And he'll do the same with you. You don't have to be ordained through you, jar of clay. You have this treasure, the gospel and his spirit. That the surpassing power, it will be clear that it's God and not us. Oh, you're not going to like what's coming next. We, what, what happens to us? What do we do have? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You're like, I know the one side sounds worse, but I don't even like what we do have. Where's the passage that says, here's the secret to never being afflicted. Never being confused or perplexed. Never being struck down. You can find that in best-selling books. You just can't find it in the Bible. We are afflicted. That word means pressed into a narrow space. Do you feel like that sometimes? Like, ah, we are afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed. Are you perplexed? I've been perplexed for a while now. It's like, oh my goodness, this is confusing. Oh dear me, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down. I go down sometimes, but not destroyed. See, we've got some of you, listen to me, and you've crossed the wall and you're experiencing and you believe, oh my goodness, not just perplexed, I've been driven to despair. I'm not just afflicted, I'm crushed, I'm crushed, I'm driven to despair, I feel destroyed, I feel forsaken. Let me help you. Again, trying to help you, but I got to hurt you a little first. If you don't take in God's word and you don't spend time drinking in the glory of your Savior, your flesh and the world and the devil will lie to you and move you from afflicted to crushed. Move you from confused to driven to despair. Move you from persecuted to forsaken. Where is God? He's, he's left us. Move you from struck down to destroyed. The way you get out of this and back over here is time with him. But he didn't say we wouldn't be afflicted. He didn't say you would never be confused. 
He didn't say you would never be persecuted or struck down. But we're not crushed. We're not destroyed. We're not forsaken. We're not driven to despair. If you are, you're listening to the wrong people. Turn off podcasts. Turn off talk radio. Put down some of the blogs and pick up the eternal word of God. And let the spirit of God renew your mind and feed your heart some hope. And feed your heart some hope. And feed your heart some hope in the midst of this. Well, quickly, let me show you one more thing I think that stands out. Related to what I'm thumping right now. Number three. Your experience of his glory should lead you back to his word. Glory that makes me want more of his word. And as I go to his word, I see more of his glory. This just works together in tandem. I see his glory and he points me to his word. I see his word and I see more glory. As I see his glory, he spokes me back to his word. But we live in a culture that that is all about the experience we want to have instead of the people he wants us to become. God is more concerned about who we are becoming than the experiences we're having. But we live in an experience-oriented culture, and I watch Christians get sucked into this. And that's what leads them out into a field in Iowa to see Mary in a cloud. That's what leads them to go nuts over the face of Jesus in an omelet instead of reading the Bible. And if you go there, you will just need another omelet or another cloud or another something You don't want to go down that path. Don't hear me saying we have no feelings and no experiences. Praise God for some wonderful experiences from time to time. But God never intended for us to be dependent on experience. Because if you are any kind of experience, even a spiritual one, if you head down the path of making your Christian life all about experiences, then your Christian life will become vulnerable to the law of diminishing returns just like everything else in this world. You'll need more. You'll need another one. You'll need something. And, and, and here's what will happen to you. You'll go from the ordinary to the unusual. The unusual to the extreme. And finally, the extreme will topple over into the ridiculous. If your life is made up of pursuing experiences, you'll just need more and you'll cross a line. You'll need more and you'll cross a line. You'll need more and you'll cross a line. He gave us His word, his word, his word. Oh, experiences come and go, you guys. An amazing, an amazing experience. The memory of it can begin to unravel and fade. But God's word remains the same year after year, decade after decade, century after century. He gave us his word. Christianity is a word-centered, word-oriented religion. With Jesus at the center. Because the basis of your Christianity better be on the word of God and informed by the word of God. Not your experiences or your feelings. Our culture is so feeling oriented. And you can see this when you look at people's bucket lists. Especially men. Skydiving is one of the top things on a bucket list. I know I just created an awkward moment. If, you, if you've done that, I don't want, you're not going to hell. I'm not saying that. <laughs> And you're like, I want to do that. Still not going to hell. But what I am saying is, what is it about skydiving? Well, I think it's the Rolls Royce of an adrenaline rush, right? I mean, nothing quite like free falling for 30 seconds through wide open space. And and, and people are like, I felt so alive. More alive than ever before. 
probably just excited to still be alive that you didn't, that the chute came out and you didn't hit the ground. Yes, you would be thinking, oh, it's good to be alive. But sadly, there's people that in those 30 seconds, for the first time, they felt alive. But you guys, when their heart stopped pounding and the adrenaline stopped pumping, they're left needing another rush. I am so grateful for experiences. I've had some wonderful ones. No omelets or clouds, but just times where I'm out on a ridge singing with my arms up, upstretched. And he's so real to me. He's so with me. I feel so caught up in the heavenlies. But there's other times I go away for a day of prayer and fasting. It's like, well, all righty then. <laughs> a day with the Lord. I know that was good for me. The feelings aren't always there. Feelings are not always there. Even some days with God's word. It's like, you know, parts of it are more like, you know, seven grain bread. All right. I know this is good. I know Leviticus is good for me. I know this is good for me. Some parts are harder than others, but it, it's the steady, faithful intake. We live by faith, fed by God's word, not sight, not experiences. Because he doesn't want us to be hamstrung and, and hindered. If I don't feel it, if I don't have another amazing experience, I'm not sure this is real. So it is worth noting. I love sometimes how the Bible is like, oh, Peter, James, and John, what would any of these guys ever say again about this? Did any of them ever talk about it again? And did they say, oh, that is the best moment of my whole Christian life. And in fact, it kept happening. We got lots of this. Nope. But Peter talks about it. And he doesn't say what you might think he would say about it. And he doesn't do what the Christian publishing companies today would do. They would title it, 10 Secrets for Staying on the Mountaintop. And they would want him to come up with some formula for how you keep this mountaintop feel. Not what he says at all. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about it. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 16. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesties. Like I saw his glory myself. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. But look at what he does in verse 19. Instead of saying, and if you can have that moment too, it'll give you the same courage that I have. Peter was, Peter was crucified upside down according to church history because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way as my savior. What would give someone that kind of courage? Multiple mountaintop moments? That's not what he says. Look at verse 19. And we have something more sure. He literally is saying that mountaintop experience, when I heard the voice of God, when I saw the majestic glory, that is not what has kept me going. That is not. He, he's now telling us what we today have. That is what kept him going. We have something more sure than an experience, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. He's saying, you got the word of God. You would do well to pay attention to this. And look at how he describes it. Next. 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying you have the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God. This is more sure. This is what he's given us, to live the same way that they lived. They did not live. Even Paul, when he first became a Christian, he has that amazing experience where he says he went out into the desert and he was caught up in the third heavenlies and he was shown great truths. He never says that ever happened again. Ever. You may have some amazing experience, but it was not multiple, unending, amazing, bucket list, spectacular, extraordinary feeling moments that kept the disciples living so radically that it turned the world upside down. They had the word of God and the spirit of God and access to the throne of God in Jesus' name, which is what we have. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son that doesn't just save us, but he changes us from one degree of glory to another as we spend time with him, as we listen to him through your word, as we sit at his feet and drink in, as you peel back the cellophane and give us grace, air to breathe and make it bigger, bigger, bigger. Frame it up against eternity. And Lord, in our weakness, as we are not adequate for the darkness today. Lord, would you be pleased to show your power, the power of the gospel, the power of your spirit. Lord, and and would you help us, Lord, Lord, pull us back when we start to drift from afflicted to crushed, when we believe the lies, when we start to drift from struck down to destroyed, as we drift from persecuted to forsaken, bring us back by your word and your spirit with a solid, robust, but not, but not crushed, not destroyed, not forsaken. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.